Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institute of Engineering Technology. This week's guest is Adam Wood, a systems engineer for Teledyne E2V and ambassador for the Chelmsford Science and Engineering Society. Adam gives us a fantastic insight into his experience as an engineer in the defence, transport and healthcare sectors. Hi, my name is Carter Moringolo. I'm an electronic and communication engineering student at Kent University, also going to be a graduate robotic systems engineer, and this is uh, Engineering Stories with my co-host Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm the head of R&D here at Silver Fox. I joined here having graduated from the University of Bath in electronic and electrical engineering. And we have Adam Wood. Uh, Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, guys. Yes, so thank you. My name's Adam Wood. I'm a systems engineer. I work at Teledyne E2V in Chelmsford in Essex in the RF power division. Why don't you tell us a bit more about the company itself? So what do you do on like a daily basis? Sure. So Teledyne E2V or E2V as it was prior to the the merger, the company's in in several divisions, but the division that, that I work in, RF Power, that stands for Radio Frequency Power, we're all about developing systems and components that deliver high power, high energy microwave um, energy. And that's used for a number of applications. There's some obvious ones that come to mind, a sort of defence, radar, that kind of thing. But actually, one of our biggest markets and, and the stuff that I mostly work on is for the healthcare sector, the medical devices industry. And our products and our systems go into radiotherapy equipment, so generating high energy x-rays to treat tumours and cancer and so on. Do you think that's a rewarding job then? Because when you're sounding like you sound very happy talking about it, do you, do you find it very rewarding? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's um, I think for, for two reasons. One, um, it's really great to know that the end application of what you're doing is literally saving lives in this case. Mm. But also the technical challenge is, you know, is rewarding and it's, it's, you know, it's worth getting out of bed for, it's worth going in every day and um, taking that on because there's always something new to do. And, you know, what we're trying to do is fairly advanced, you know, we're trying to try to push the limit of what, what can be done. Um, and you're up against the laws of physics, you know, um, <laughs> trying to get more, more power in less space and all this stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's really, really good work. Why did you go into engineering? So, I mean, I've always been interested in kind of how things work, you know, from a young age, I was always taking stuff apart. You know, I, I used to get, I really like reading those books where you'd have like the exploded view of how things, how things go, in, go inside. And uh, back in the days, I mean, this is showing my age, back in the days of CD-ROMs with uh, multimedia content on, you could uh, get those and we had those on that on our um, 1990s family PC. It was brilliant. <laughs> so I really enjoyed all that stuff. And I really enjoyed like making things even if they didn't work, but just kind of like mock-ups of, of real-world things and, and imagining that, you know, they, they were real. So I've kind of always had that, and, and I think that partly comes from the family. I mean, my dad and his dad and my mum's dad all worked at Marconi at one point, uh, because of where I'm from in Chelmsford, but um, also other, you know, large companies through the years, and so I think I've kind of got that technical fascination from them. But when I was at school, actually, my technology teacher, my electronics, teacher was um, really good at fostering that interest she you know saw that I was interested in this kind of stuff and worked very hard and, and, and she still does She's, she still teaches at my school actually she still puts a lot of effort into you know running extracurricular activities courses internally and externally clubs that kind of thing and 
I think because of that, I then sort of, it, it kind of crystallized, it came clear to me that like, oh, actually, this is a career option, you know, it's not just a hobby or something I enjoy doing, I can actually do this for a living and be paid to do it, which sort of felt a bit, wow, you know, that's, that's great, bit, bit of a cheat, really. So yeah, that's how I got into it, I suppose. So you mentioned your design electronics teacher. Was she your inspiration to become a STEM ambassador and help and inspire other people? I think so, yes. I saw how much work she was putting in there and how much how much of a difference she was making. I guess, you know, later on, though, that's not something you necessarily appreciate as a school student straight away. You know, we've kept in touch. I'm, I'm still in touch with her. We're, we're, we're you know, very good friends now. And uh, we work together on various things, you know, that I do as a STEM ambassador. And so, yeah, it's it's really great to be able to sort of give, give something back. And yeah, I think I think it's fair to say she was, was an inspiration. She helped me get my first work experience, my placements while I was at university. Yeah, uh, it's a real, really good role model. What sort of work do you do as a STEM ambassador? Oh, I mean, all kinds of things. So the main categories, I guess, are a lot of mock interviews. So for people who are thinking of applying to university for science, engineering, that kind of thing, do a lot of mock interviews with students. I spend a lot of time at um, fairs and shows and events and things like that, you know, on the stand, talking to people, handing out flyers and leaflets and whatever have you. I do quite a few careers talks. So, you know, similar to, to what we're doing today, just talking about my experience and, you know, what are the various options for people out there. I do some mentoring, both of individual students and teams on projects. I find myself uh, at a lot of competitions, assessing and judging people's uh, projects and things like that, which, which is always uh, good fun. I have been known to give the odd kind of masterclass or lesson, don't get too much time to do that these days, unfortunately, but, um, you know, just uh, give an extracurricular talk on, on a particular subject and do some hands-on activities with a, uh, with, a, with a school group, which is really good fun. I'm a trustee of a local charity that kind of aims to promote STEM in Essex uh, regionally, and I do work with volunteer work with the IET as well, which isn't strictly STEM ambassador, but it's in the same vein. So I'm, I um, volunteer as a registration assessor and an interviewer. Which I guess is how we also got you on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of going back to your job, but also in reference to your like um, being a STEM ambassador, you're a system engineer, right? Why did you go into system engineering specifically? But also, do you encourage your students who you mentor, do you encourage them to do the same thing as you? Or do you guide them down different paths? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess, so my specialism, my, uh, you know, technical specialism, if you like, is electronics and software. That's what I specialised in at uni. And that's what I've always had the, the interest in and, and the passion for since school, really. But I suppose... I've always kind of taken the most satisfaction from having things that are or you know, coming up with solutions that are elegant or simple in some way and having good structure, good architecture and having things kind of like just so. I mean, you might say, well, that's just a bit anal, really. But actually, it's I think that's quite important about, you know, really understanding what you're doing and, and, and making sure you're, you're doing the right thing and going about things in the right way. I think that's very important in engineering. So that coupled with the fact that I've always really been interested in, in everything, even beyond my specialism, you know, I've always been interested in mechanics, thermodynamics, the science, basically physics. I just love it. I think it's really fascinating. That really kind of has led me naturally towards systems engineering, which I think is an experience. Certainly, I mean, the people I know who are systems engineers often have that same experience. And now, you know, it's more common for people to trained professionally as a systems engineer, if you like, uh, as, uh, at university. But actually, I think a lot of them 
come from other disciplines and then kind of, as I did, find themselves naturally taking on those kind of informal technical leadership roles and, and, and naturally taking on responsibility for the things you know, beyond immediately what they're designing and what they're responsible for, kind of taking ownership of that wider architecture, the interfaces, the whole solution as a whole, and also understanding the, the problem well, I suppose, you know, what are the requirements? All of that kind of naturally became part of my job over time. And so now I am a systems engineer. Um, that's just what you happen to call what I do. In answer to the, the second part of your question, yeah, one piece of advice I do have for people is keep it general. Don't close doors unnecessarily. It's possible to have quite a general career in engineering. And um, unless you, you know, really, really know you want to specialise in something, keep it broad, keep your options open. Did you do, I know Cambridge offer general engineering as a degree. Is that what you took on or did you specialise in electronics? So the Cambridge degree, which is similar to several other universities and I think becoming increasingly common, is two years of general everything and then two years, if you do the masters obviously, two years of specialising, you know, you choose your modules and you specialise in an area. I think that's a really good balance. I mean, it you know, it differs for different people. Um, some people prefer more specific, some people prefer more general, you're never going to please everyone, but for me I thought that was quite a good balance and particularly in my role now as a systems engineer having that broad background understanding coupled with a deep understanding in at least one thing is actually really useful both as a designer but now more as a technical leader and as almost an engineering manager in some ways actually really helpful because it means you can understand what's going on you know when you're working with your team and they're talking about stuff you know what they're talking about you, you know you're not you don't have to, you don't struggle with that communication about trying to get the detail across and you can kind of keep across things more effectively. Would you recommend general engineering for someone who want to go into engineering, but they're not sure what to do? I think so. Yes. I mean, like I say, obviously people's preferences will vary. What I would say is that all the universities I looked at when I was applying, and it was six in those days, not five as it is now. And obviously I looked at some more, I think that I've Ever, never even made the, the final six they all said you don't have to tie yourself down now so even if you sign on to one of our you know let's say electrical or electronic engineering courses if you wanted to switch to something else later mechanical or robotics or any of the sort of you know family of courses on offer you can do so so they clearly recognize that people don't necessarily know what they want to do uh, which is fair enough because actually at 18 you may not have been exposed to a lot of, of this stuff some universities like Cambridge just say, well, tell you what, let's just sort of cut through all that and we'll just offer a general course and you don't have to choose until the second year, which is another way of looking at that same um, problem. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, it's a good idea. Um, and as you say, if anyone is unsure about what they want to do, I would strongly recommend they look at a general course. What about someone who's sceptical of going into engineering in its entirety? Would you, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think this is a really um, hot topic at the moment, actually, and certainly forms a key part of the work I do as a STEM ambassador and as a trustee of this local charity, CSES. There seems to be a growing realisation among the STEM community, or recognition, I should say, that technology on its own isn't the answer, isn't going to give us all the answers. You know, we look at some of the really disruptive technologies in recent years, such as social media and you know, or because of internet enabled technologies in general that speed up communication, AI as well being another good example. And we realise that whilst they're, you know, great technologies, we have to be really careful about how we use them. 
So the technological application has to be framed within the kind of human or the cultural need that we're, you know, we're trying, we're trying to solve. So this is where we get things like the STEAM movement from STEM and the arts, science, technology, engineering, the arts and mathematics. This is recognition that as well as needing to be creative to be an effective engineer or scientist, you also have to really understand the, you know, in my language as a systems engineer, the whole system, the whole context, what, what are we trying to do? You know, pe technology should serve people, not the other way around. So I would say to anyone who is sceptical about engineering, either as, or, or, you know, science, technology, engineering as a profession or, or as an industry, I would say, if anything, it's getting broader and we need more people. We have always needed, we just now realise more clearly that we need more people who aren't, you know, what you might think of as your traditional engineer. You know, people who have that slightly broader perspective on things can come in with a slightly more yeah, creative or artistic interpretation of what of what we mean by engineering so that we can actually tackle problems, you know, today's problems and tomorrow's problems effectively. Do you think that there's a lack of creativity then in the profession at the moment? Do you think that we're too railroaded into what we're doing? Because a lot of things nowadays, you just Google and people will tell you how to do it. Do you think that there's a lack of creativity? And do you think we need more of that out of the box, the the real out-of-the-box thinking kind of thing. Yeah, I think this is actually quite a, a, a difficult area, actually, because if you, as I do, go into school and, uh, you know, do a project or do some work with a, with a load of students or with a load of children, actually, they're immensely creative. We all are. We all are when we're young, you know, because we're unshackled by life experience <laughs> that kind of ties us down. You know, we, we have a, 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 not a blank mind, but an, un, an unfiltered mind. A blank canvas. A blank know. canvas, yeah. So, and that's great, you know, and part of our education system is to sort of encourage that. But I think, yeah, what happens is through the process of school and then latterly university, where the kind of focus is on exam grades, results, quantitative measurement of performance and assessment, and then university courses, which obviously have a lot of content to get through. So they tend to focus on the, the technical side of it and kind of there's an assumption that you'll pick up everything else some other way. I think all of that does narrow people down to become less creative or at least behave less creatively. They don't necessarily lose the skill, they just kind of lose the habit. How do you think you would approach it to improve that? What would you say that people or universities or companies would have to do to kind of get that back to on the right track? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we're trying to do some work on this in Essex at the moment. But I think, yeah, um, looking at what looking at other models. So there are other places in the country that have tried to address this problem. And so we, we are looking at, you know, reusing some of that and, and learning from, from those successes. And looking at those other models, I think the kind of takeaways are in education, so throughout school and throughout university, it's better, it's stronger if there is kind of more of a more of a fusion between science and creativity. It's taught in a more integrated way. Things like when you're documenting your work, maybe not just doing it as a written report, make it as a video or as a, as a podcast like we're doing today or something like that. And, you know, bring in those digital and those creative skills, which are useful life skills generally, but bring them into the... Provide more freedom for the students. Yeah, and, you know, give people more ownership it's a tough one because obviously people are motivated by different things and you know schools do have a, a mission in terms of educating people to a certain standard they have a requirements placed on them but yeah giving people great greater freedom greater ownership to kind of scope out their own work i think that is how you embed those skills so do you think it's an issue with the education system as a whole 
okay, let's take a step back. I think the way our education system is set up, you know, based on quite long-standing traditions now, you know, it's a, it's almost a sort of a Victorian kind of way of doing things. And obviously it has moved forward since then. But, you know, the, the pace of change in the world is very rapid now and it, it accelerates, you know, it's, it's, it's an exponential growth and technology moves apace. It's much harder to update things like your education system, if we're going to focus on that as an example, at that same rate, because one, the, just the inertia, the size of it, you know, you've got so much to change, but also you need to be absolutely sure that what you're doing is going to be effective. You know, you need to be evidence-based and you, you know, need to bring people along with you. So I think it's no surprise that the way our education system is currently structured is slightly out of step with where businesses are and where technology is and where we are as a society. So no, I wouldn't say the education system is the problem. It's that technology and science moves on very rapidly and everything else is constantly playing catch up. Kind of circling back in terms of the profession of engineering itself, uh, a lot of, for example, myself, I only have done a one year of industry and I really loved it. And some people have lots of mixed views, but what is the thing that you really like about your profession and what's the thing that you don't? So I think my favorite thing about being an engineer actually is the variety. There's constantly a fresh challenge. As I mentioned earlier, this blend of science, technical skills required and creativity creates for a pretty unique challenge and the ability to kind of exercise those two uh, i don't know what what the word is but kind of two parts of my brain if you like or, or well not just me any anyone who's working in the field gets to exercise those two parts of their brain that for me is a, is a, a real plus i think that coupled with the the knowledge that it's you know making a positive impact a real positive impact to society i think that that i would say is what i like most about the profession in terms of what i dislike i think for me the the, the big problem and the big challenge we need to overcome is the diversity issue that we have in engineering uh, and particularly engineering actually i mean it's, it's it is a problem across stem but engineering specifically really does have a gender balance issue women in stem obviously is a hot topic and we know that that women and and other groups are, are underrepresented in the profession and i don't you know i don't really want to sort of get into gender politics particularly but i think this this notion of opening up the profession this realization that it's it's a more broad church or or has become a broader church you know we need more creative input we need people with slightly different perspectives is important to tackling that it's an established fact through you know peer-reviewed research that the more diverse the set of viewpoints that you have the more diverse inputs that you take the better the solution mm. why do you think that is why do you think engineering is so prevalent for engineering that there is a lack of diversity in that way I suspect, I, I mean, I, I don't know, this is, this is my uh, sort of, you know, personal musings and hypothesis here, but I think predominantly, you know, gender balance issues in society in general come about from, you know, societal and cultural norms that have been embedded over the last, well, hundred odd years. And of course, now the notion of gender identity is becoming more fluid, you know, it goes beyond just men and women and that this is a whole new area for a lot of people society still has to catch up with that traditionally men went out to work and women didn't and for kind of manufacturing type industries where it was you go out you go to the factory or you go to the office and i think we've seen that carry forward we've still not tackled it and because of that kind of pervasive imbalance it's it's, it's kind of self-perpetuating so you know then if it's 
there's already a gender imbalance and it's mostly men, I think that makes it seem less attractive to people who aren't men. I think that's probably the, the main culprit. Mm. So you think by getting more role models, female and other diverse areas of, of people, by getting more role models from those areas into engineering, do you think that will solve it or help it? I think that's part of it. And I think another really important part is actually not so much, you know, ro role models and that kind of positive positive image and positive reinforcement, although that's certainly part of it, is actually looking at behaviours that we all have. There's a lot of, you know, research and, and thinking going on at the moment about the kind of this notion of the default male behavior so and, the, and this is a this is broader than just engineering now we're talking about you know the feminist movement and all these other things you know topics on which i hasten to add i'm completely unqualified to talk right so this is just personal <laughs> view from my own personal reading and so on but among other things i would encourage people to read caroline criado perez's book invisible women which sets out a lot of the thinking on this and okay that's written from a feminist standpoint but it, it's nonetheless i think an important body of work and it really kind of reveals a lot of these things that people might not be aware of so it's tackling those and tackling behaviours and, and it's small changes, incremental changes, but it gradually eroding away at people's entrenched behaviours, I think, is where we're going to make the real difference so that workplaces are less unattractive to women in, in STEM and other sectors. It's interesting you say that the entrenched behaviours. I actually heard an anecdote not too long ago about a piece of AI that was used to filter through CVs. Yeah. And because... All the people in the existing jobs were male because that's the industry that we, we were in. Anyone who was female was ruled out on that basis because they didn't fit the pre-existing mould. Yeah, I think this is a really good example of the perils, if you like, of letting technology or relying on technology or assuming that technology will sort us out and will we'll move us forward. I mean, computer scientists would say garbage in, garbage out, right, you know. It's only as good as what you give it. So, yeah, and anything that is of human creation will be, well, you know, made in our own image. It will be subject to all the human fallacies, flaws. I think, as you said, that's, that's a really strong example. And, and that should be a really clear warning note to all of us that if we're not careful, we'll just end up perpetuating these imbalances and these biases further by embedding them into our technology, which then has such an influence on our life. This podcast is produced by the IUT and Silver Fox. Silver Fox manufacturing supply cable, wire and pipe labels for a variety of sectors around the world, including rail, data, power, construction, renewable energy, oil and gas and more. The company has been in operation since 1977, proudly manufacturing all products here in the UK and shipping them globally, either direct or via their ever-growing network of distributors. For all of your labelling needs, please contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call on plus four four. 01707-373727. What was working at Atkins on East West Rail and HS2 like, especially considering the high profile nature of especially HS2 and potentially being pulled into the spotlight? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I guess, thankfully for me as a systems engineer, my role is actually quite similar on any project. I mean, certainly all the projects I've worked on, which, as you say, have ranged from railways to um, electronic, small electronic products. It's actually very similar, the, the day job, because at the end of the day, the role of the systems engineer is to make sure that, you know, you understand your requirements correctly, make sure you're sticking to them and make sure that you can prove that you've 
stuck to them. I mean, I'm grossly simplifying there, but in terms of what the stakeholders need and want, that that's your kind of main bread and butter. There's a whole load of stuff about coming up with an effective solution and, and creative architecturing and all this kind of stuff. But actually, that's less less so on railways because it's such a standards-led industry. And it's because of those standards that it makes it somewhat easier as an engineer because there is a political process that decides what railways are going to get built where obviously that ranges from the strategic you know the sort of 5 10 15 year planning of, of network rail and control you know find out they have those five year control periods where they say right we're going to invest this much or at least they did when i was working there and that's a, a kind of a politically led process by the time it comes to you as a project team as a delivery team the parameters have been fairly well defined there's always some kind of noise if you like a little bit of uncertainty over the exact alignment that the route's going to take and therefore there can be some negotiations about land and you know whose garden it goes through and all this kind of stuff which is where it really tends to come down to the contentious issues but actually the broad corridor has often been earmarked for development through a statutory legal process first so in a way I guess me personally, it didn't make much difference to my day job, what I was doing. But I was aware that, you know, this was very much something that was in the public eye. I mean, I, I guess HS2 and East West Rail were quite contrasting projects in a way, because East West Rail, the section that I was working on, was almost entirely to be built on or will be built on pre-existing railway land that had just been decommissioned. So there was little contention in terms of taking up extra land uh, and stuff. And also the people who immediately live near East West Rail are going to be the ones who benefit most. So broadly speaking, and again, a gross simplification, but broadly speaking, the mood was in favour of East West Rail. HS2 is quite a different story because really only serves the nodes, the endpoints, and, and a lot of people are disrupted in between. And, you know, that's a, a trade-off that, you know, any large infrastructure project has to deal with. And, you know, as a, as a country, you know, politically, we've decided that's what we want to do. My role was to manage those interfaces between HS2 and East West Rail. And this was, this was difficult because um, they were at very different um, stages of their life cycle. East West Rail was in quite a mature design phase, but by this time, HS2 was still, you know, little more, I mean, this is going to sound facetious, but it was some lines on the page, you know, they, I mean, they'd done, a, obviously they'd done a lot of work, but in terms of the specific section that we were dealing with, it was very much, oh, we'll worry about that later. We've got much bigger fish to fry in terms of the main route and, and everything else. So I think really for me, what it meant was just having to be very aware of what was going on. You know, we heard stories about some surveyors and people like that getting in altercations and fights and things. Thankfully, I wasn't out on site much to be exposed to that. I mean, yeah, I mean, a, a, a survey van had its brake lines cut. I mean, there was really severe opposition to some of this stuff locally. But because I was working with all, you know, all different parts of the of the team parts of the machinery you know the signaling guys environmental mitigation and, and, and landscaping and that kind of thing that the tracks civils you know you name it i was i was kind of working with them so my job was to kind of coordinate and make sure everyone you know everyone had access to the right information and, and everything was being captured properly i felt that the role i was doing was actually contributing to that accountability to the public of yes we've you know we've done it properly we've met the standards which you may or may not agree with but they are the agreed standard of how we're going to do this and so i think that you know gave me the satisfaction of saying well you know i've done my bit I was only working on it for a couple of years. I've done my bit to, to make sure we've done it properly and that what we're delivering to the public is what we should have done. That must contrast quite a lot. You mentioned that your current role, the end product, helps people and having that much, I want to say the word hate, towards the project you're working on or were yeah, working it's, on. So I've worked in defence in, in the first instance, then transport industry, particularly rail, and now 
healthcare with with a bit of defence because you know, defence is, is uh, all technologies feed into defence ultimately and it's and it's one of our largest industries in the country. So I've always enjoyed working in the really big industries. I, that's where I kind of get my satisfaction from in a way is knowing that I'm sort of doing something that's going to make a positive and a, and a reasonable impact. I mean, even though now, you know, the application is is positive and I'm, I'm delighted to be working on stuff that does save lives, you know, treats cancer and uh, and and that's great. You know, I can't, can't, can't really get much better than that. The thing is, though, you get so like, obviously, in this country, we all benefit from nationalised healthcare. It's free to us, up to and including complex cancer treatments. We're very lucky, we're very privileged to have that. Other countries, not the case. I mean, America is the obvious example. Everything's privatised over there. And so there's a small you know, part of me that is always going, well, yeah, you know, when you save money, if you make this part cheaper or something, yeah, OK, that you know, makes our product more competitive and it allows us to sell more and access the greater market. And that's, that's good. And that's good for my salary and good for you know, the bonus and shareholders and everything else. But actually, it's reducing the end cost to someone who may have to pay for their treatment. And I think that's a really important thing that everyone should just be aware of, that actually, you know, that cost saving will work its way through. And, you know, we do have a moral imperative to make healthcare as cheap and accessible as reasonably possible. So my final question really for you is that you've kind of been around in terms of your industry. It's like a two-part question. My first part would be, what was your favorite industry to work in? So what was your favorite kind of thing? Uh, But then on top of that, because you've done such a varied amount of work, do you think you'll ever go back into university or anything and go to a different level of education? Or do you think you're going to teach, for example, be a lecturer? Is there any, what's your future in that way? Yeah, okay. So I think my favorite industry is is the one that I'm currently in, healthcare. If I I have to pick a favorite, I mean, it's it's a bit unfair, really. They all have different challenges. I mean, I've cut my teeth, if you like, in defense. That's where I learned most of what I know now, you know, because as I said, it's, 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 it's broad in terms of technology. It's whatever works really. So the only, the, the only thing for me that I haven't, I feel like I haven't really done is the energy sector. That's like, oh, I still haven't really, you know, health, yep, transport, yep, defense, good. <laughs> energy would be nice at some point, I suppose. But no, I, you know, I'm very happy wh- where I am in my current role. I, you know, I really enjoy the job and I really enjoy the people I work with, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't ask for more. It's, it's, it's local, it's, it's, you know, 15 minute walk away. Yeah, I'm very happy. But to answer your question about going back to school and going back into education, I mean, in a way, I feel like I've never left, if I'm honest, you know, always. Always learning, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the key, you know, selling points of being an engineer is you're always, you're always having to adapt and, and learn new stuff and, you know, face fresh challenges. Yeah, I've toyed with the idea of doing a PhD. I mean, that's a very vague, you know, it'd it'd have to be a sort of on my own time sort of thing. If I'm truly honest, that would probably be largely a vanity project. But, you know, (laughs) it's, uh, I think, you know, it's it's really interesting. I've learned over the last few years, literally the last couple of years, I suppose, as I have become more of what you might call a professionalised systems engineer, that actually some of the really interesting stuff it's not just the technology and the physics. I mean, I still love all of that, but it's also like the human aspects and why projects fail or succeed and all this stuff I was saying earlier about the kind of human aspects of, of engineering technology. And, and things like, you know, language and communication are really important in that. And, and yeah, I, of course. I feel like if I, if I was going to have my sort of, you know, masterpiece research, whatever, and anything, it's probably more likely to be in that, which if you'd <laughs> asked me five years ago, okay. I would have n- never predicted that at all. I love kind of, 
teaching informally and I mean I don't know if I'll become a teacher professionally um, as, as a career maybe I have uh, I've often t- toyed with that idea as well and one one of my um, kind of I have an honorary position with Anglia Ruskin University as a, as a visiting fellow so I don't do lecturing there but I have discussed with them the option of maybe doing a little bit part-time again this is all kind of long-term future stuff. Tell us a bit about the Chelmsford Science and Engineering Society. Yeah, so CSES, Chelmsford Science and Engineering Society, it's a registered charity. Uh, it has a mission to advance the public understanding and awareness of science and technology. It's 100 years old. We had our centenary back in October last year, October 2020. And in fact, we managed to orchestrate a year-long festival, Essex 2020, a year of science and creativity off the back of that, which was really good. So the society was originally formed as a consortium of the local industries in Chelmsford back in 1919, 1920. You know, household names you'd all be familiar with, Marconi, Hoffman, Crompton are the, the, the classic three, but there are many others. And, you know, it's evolved with the time. So what started as a kind of industry group, an industry forum, if you like, has now become more about education, both in terms of the education system. So, you know, we do loads of work with schools, workshops, competitions, projects, that kind of thing to promote STEM careers and to, um, you know, help provide that enrichment and hands-on aspect and extracurricular aspect to people's core education. We're also about revealing and promoting the impact of, of science and technology in everyone's life. You know, as, as we were saying earlier, it's, it's in becoming increasingly important in people's lives. And I think, you know, people would benefit from, a, from an understanding. Simple things like data privacy is, you know, kind of an obvious topic, but, you know, make, making that available to the public. So we do talks and workshops and things for the public and, and that kind of thing. Discussion events. We provide a social and professional network for our members and for the public. And we also bring the different stakeholders together so we can connect business industry and the education sector, for example, public and private sectors in a way that not many organisations can. And we can help provide really good industry-linked curriculum enrichment, for example, and careers advice and awareness to help build that that pipeline to industry. And, you know, bring our corporate partners together and help facilitate innovation and and enable them to work together on things in a kind of non-competitive way that they might not otherwise have a network to do. And bring in academic partners, I mentioned Anglia Ruskin University, who are our main partner there. So there's kind of a, a mix of things there, but it, like I say, it all speaks to promoting the public understanding of science and technology and essentially equipping people with the, the skills that, you know, they may need throughout their life to, to get involved with that, you know, to get involved with science technology or at the very least just to, you know, be able to contribute to society in a better way, be valuable, feel valued and, you know, gain some some sense of life satisfaction. I mean, that's the kind of philosophical end point, but that, yeah, that's what we're all about. And how can people get involved? So go to our website, cses.org.uk. That's where you'll find out all about us. If you live in Essex or in Chelmsford, I would strongly encourage any, yeah, anyone who lives nearby to come to our events. Clearly, as we um, come out of COVID, we'll, we'll start doing some more events in person again. Like I said, it's a registered charity. So there is a £12 membership fee annually for, for, for people who want to support us in that way. It's free membership for anyone who is in education either as a student, a teacher, academic, anyone like that. So yeah, have a look on the website, see what we're up to. Register as a STEM ambassador if you're not already and come and help us out with some of our events that, and, and projects. That's, that's what I would say. Fantastic. That's lovely. No, genuinely. I think me and Alex would just like to thank you really just for being here. It's been really nice and really good to no, chat with you. No, thank you. Yeah, it's been really good fun. 